And so in James, in James chapter four, that's, that's the overarching theme. And everything that, lo that we looked at, the, the lust that war within us, all of those things being contrary to the purpose and the plan and the will of God uh, and, and the execution of those things, we talked about being for him or against him and being engaged in that process. We, we've looked at those things. We've looked at trusting in God's grace. And so as we, as we delve into this, we kind of get into this idea uh, a little bit more directly that God is alone, the only God that exists. And he begins this as we look in verse 11 of James chapter 4. He says, speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And I want to just touch upon this for a, little, for a moment because it be, has become probably a much more common problem in the church. And I say that based upon my opinion that the ability, uh, we talked about this a little bit last night at dinner, the ability to so opinion in a public forum without any repercussions is drastically greater than it has been in the past. If I wanted to insult somebody in the past, I had to do so face to face. Now I can do it from thousands of miles away, not even knowing the person, which gets directly to the heart of what's being talked about here. That we are. Uh, able to cut others down. So the word that is translated here, speak evil, most often you'll find it in modern translations, or if you look it up in the Strongs, for example, it says slander, which only slightly covers the, the broader topic of what's being uh, discussed here. When we speak uh, about that, it, it falls short of the actual meaning. Uh, and it means, so I, I think about it, it means to cut somebody down with my words. However that may be, we're going to look at some examples here in just a, a little while, but uh, other words that we would read would be backbiting, right? That we're talking behind somebody's back, that we're doing so in such a way uh, that's malicious and they're not around. Or maligning somebody, which means to speak spitefully and in a critical manner. And what we're saying here is that this is not something that should be uh, done within the church. The context gives us the idea that in the midst of all of this, we've assigned a motive and intent to the person for, the, for why they're doing what they're doing. And that becomes an important distinction for us as we move forward here. It puts us in a place of omniscience, which, by the way, none of us are. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17 for a moment. Uh, 1 Samuel 17. In this passage, this is where we read about David and Goliath in this chapter. In 1 Samuel 17, you'll remember that David, the youngest of his brothers, is sent by his father Jesse to take some food and to check on the situation that's happening there with the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines as they've met in battle, and everything is arrayed, and they've set everything up. And here comes David along, and he, he inquires with his brother. He sees Goliath out here mocking the armies of God, and he asks, what's going on here? Why are, 
if this Philistine is going to defame our God, if he's going to utter these blasphemies, why are we not out there staunchly defending and fighting against? And everybody is cowering because Goliath is a giant. They're terrified. And so as we get into this, that's sort of where we pick it up in verse 28 of 1 Samuel 17. This is Daniel's older brother's response. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why comest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. So he speaks evil of David and he maligns him. He says, listen, I understand your pride. I understand your impure motive for being here. You just want to see the spectacle of this battle. Why are you even here, David? And he begins to uh, cut him down. And David's response is this in verse 29. What have I done? What have I now done? Is there not a cause? In other words, I was sent here. Here is David honoring his father in bringing these the, the supplies to his brother and doing exactly as his father has told him to do. David's heart is pure in this matter. He, he's not. But here, here he is cut down by Eliab. We see this example, the imputation of motive without the benefit of omniscience. Now, I want to look at the prohibition, and we could look at many, many instances where we would be, as believers, prohibited or commanded to not speak evil, not to malign, not to slander, not to backbite one another. So we're going to look at a couple of examples, and then we're going to look at the, the proper application of the words that we speak. If we shouldn't speak evil, how should we speak? And I'll just, by way of uh, moving along, if we have an issue with our brother or with our sister, we're commanded by Jesus himself to go to that person, to understand the motive, to interact with them directly so that we might uh, work through our differences to the glory and to the honor of God. In Proverbs chapter 26, if you'll turn there with me, Proverbs chapter 26, in this passage, Proverbs 26, 17 through 28, we're going to see some examples of evil speaking. So let's read this, beginning in verse 17. He that passes by and meddles with strife belonging not to him is like one that takes a dog by the ears. Now, just think about that for a moment. We understand the picture that's being painted here, but the evil speaking is engaging, is being a busybody and engaging in this when it's not our place. We haven't been asked to be a witness. We haven't asked to be engaged or mediate anything. We haven't, it has nothing to do with us whatsoever, yet we're going to quickly and hastily interject ourselves into this situation without the benefit of context. And in so doing, and, and the idea is that we are, they're imputing motive, and that's a key thing, to either party or both parties. 
So meddling, being, being in, engaged in those things that we ought not to be engaged in. Verse 18, as a madman who casts fire brands, arrows, and death, as the man that deceives his neighbor and says, am not I in sport? Right, so here, you know, I was just teasing. I was, it was only a joke. Now, and it isn't a prohibition against teasing or, or, or playing a practical joke. But what's happening here, it's being compared to where there's this parallelism happening. The man that deceives his neighbor is likened to the guy who casts firebrands, arrows, and death. Right? From a distance, I can cause destruction and death and hurt. And then when I'm caught red-handed, oh, it's just a joke. The intent is the destruction and the death that may result. Verse 21, as coals are burning are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. If I take hot coals and I put them in a bed of, of unlit coals, the heat is going to light the other coals. And the same is true that somebody who kindles strife, whether they're backbiting and speaking about people behind their backs, hey, did you hear about this? Whether it's gossip, whatever it may be, the idea is that there is strife being, and we all have been there and been on both sides of that conversation potentially or witnessed it, the people who come along and they stir the pot for no other purpose other than to have stirred the pot and just sit back and enjoy the chaos and the confusion and the destruction that results. And just like this, Fire, if we remove the candle, if we remove the source, oftentimes it'll go away. The words of a tailbearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. That tailbearer, that's that, that gossip. Now, gossip within the church is rampant. I don't know that it's so bad in our church per se. Uh, I've never been witness of it. So I'll put it that way, which is, which we should be commended for. But in the church at large, right? All, how often here's the talebearer and they show up at the Bible study or they show up and we're, we have prayer requests. Pray for so-and-so. That's all that would have to be said. Pray for so-and-so. But let me explain why we need to pray for so-and-so. And it isn't so that we might pray more accurately. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Pray for so-and-so. They've been given this diagnosis of cancer, or they're really struggling in their finances. Just pray for them. That, that's fine. But pray for so-and-so. Have you heard the gossip? Have you heard the details? Let me fill you in. And it becomes this outlet. We're adding that fire. We're bringing that tail for the satisfaction of having brought it. It's gossip, and it's just shrouded in Christian garb. It's a facade. Burning lips and a wicked heart are like a potsherd covered with silver dross. Doesn't matter what you paint it with. It's the same on the inside. He that hates dissembles with his lips and lays up deceit within him. Dissembles with his lips. That's tearing down. You remember that earlier on in, in James chapter 4, uh, I think verse 2, right, that we it, it talked about murder. 
that we are killing one another to consume upon the lust of our flesh. This is an example of that. He that dissembles or tears down with his lips hates his brother. Jesus said, listen, if you hate your brother without cause, you've murdered them in your heart. If we look at what God is saying here, the one that's cutting down, that's tearing down, that, that works to dissemble somebody and lays up to see within him, that person is operating out of the abundance of a heart of hate. He that speaks fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Whose hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. Whoso diggeth a pit shall fall therein, and he that rolls a stone it shall return upon him. A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and flattering mouth worketh ruin. So we have flattery. We have this deceitful uh, flattery. He that speaks fair. But ultimately, his design is evil intent. His design is on the backside of that fair speaking, of that careful engagement. Is this covered deceit, this covered hatred. His wickedness shall be shown before the whole congregation. Your sin will find you out. If you dig a pit, you're going to fall on it. He that rolls a stone going to turn back on him. The idea is that we're going to reap what we sow when it comes to the words that we're employing. When we look at speaking evil, when we look at cutting one another down, when we look at those kinds of things, that's what's being discussed. And here we have a list of examples. Is it an exhaustive list? No. But it gives us insight. When we talk about the tongue in James chapter 3 and how easy it is to sin with the tongue, this is in part what we're referencing here, this evil speaking. Now, we as believers are to have discipled words, and I chose that carefully, discipled. That means that they are in following with what Jesus taught, with the example of our Lord who, when it was necessary, spoke harshly and directly, without fear. He was never deceitful, never feigning. He also didn't stir up strife where it was unnecessary, and that's in part why Jesus spoke in parables. To those who could understand them, who had a heart that was soft to hear, they were understandable. But to those who were unwilling to take the time to think about it or who were unwilling to hear what he was saying, they didn't understand. He didn't needlessly stir up strife. And so we as believers should engage in a conversation in the same way. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 4. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, um, there's this clear principle that when we leave something behind, just leaving it behind doesn't change the nature of who we are. But when we actually leave that behind and then engage in that which we should be doing, that's when there is a change of heart. We're not a hearer only. We're a doer of the work that should be being done. And in reference to stealing, he who steals, let him steal no more. 
but let him go and work with his hands. Now we're engaging in what we should be engaging in. And the same principle is going to carry out through what we're looking at this morning. Look with me in the beginning in verse 29 of Ephesians 4. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Now, corrupt doesn't simply mean, uh, as some would say, uh, coarse language or cuss words. While that may fall into that category, that's not what's being discussed here necessarily. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That word corrupt means that which defiles, that which tears down. Evil speaking is what's being addressed here. Maligning one another. But that which is good, what we should speak, we don't do this, but this is what we should speak. That which is good to the use of edifying or building up and supporting that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That those who are hearing and we're engaging in conversation with would be pushed toward, as we read in Hebrews 10.25, let us provoke one another to love and to good works. We engage in that conversation. We engage in that, and we, we purposefully go to it, right? We don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together, but we're pursuing it. Here it is. We're letting this, we don't do this, but we engage in this. But we are to use it for edifying that it may minister grace to the hearers. Verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. It's grievous to the Lord that we would communicate in such a way that it tears people down. That we would malign one another. that we would damage the relationship within the body of Christ and the unity of the, of the church by evil speaking of one another. Let all bitterness, in verse 34, and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So here's the thing. We're going to be encouraged this morning. We're going to be challenged. Here's the prohibition. This is what we ought not to do. We shouldn't cut each other down. We should, within the body of Christ, use our words to encourage, to edify, to build up, to in truth. And I'm not saying that we pull back, that we don't ever cause offense. That's not the point. That's going to happen. We're guaranteed that that's going to happen if we're speaking truth. But what it means is that we actively engage in it. That we leave the one thing and we pursue the other thing in obedience to Christ. In Colossians chapter 4, turn there with me. Colossians chapter 4, if you want to take all of this and put the what we should be doing into practice in a single, easy, to understand, easy to remember phrase, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace. Seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. It's pretty simple. There's the idea here that we are ready to give an answer, that we are those apologists, those who would stand in ready defense, that we are going to speak the truth that we would know how we should answer. 
But also it says that our, our words should be seasoned with grace, like we've salted food, right? Salt just enhances the flavor of what is already there. It makes it better. And that's the same way that the words that we speak should be seasoned with grace. You know, if we all go down here to the square and we go around and we take the opportunity and we each taste the food at each booth, we're going to determine the one that is the best. Because we're going to come back tomorrow and we want to eat, you know, we don't have all the time in the world, we want to eat at the best place. And so we take the opportunity to do that. Their food is desirable because they've seasoned it well, because they've done what is necessary to make it desirable. And all the same with you and I, as we engage with our words, those things that we speak truth, as we do so kindly, tenderheartedly, in love with one another, unashamedly, with confidence in the truth, that's appealing. Now, it may not appeal to everyone. There will be those that it offends. We could go down, and if we all went, we probably wouldn't agree on who had the best food. In the same way, there are those who are unwilling to acknowledge the truth that is clearly set before them. And in that instance, right, you, they say you can't lead a horse to water, or you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink, which is not 100% true, because if you salt his oats, he's going to have a desire to drink. That might be the only thing that we can do is to sow grace, the seasoning of truth into somebody's life. That may be all that we're allowed or permitted in that conversation to do. Salty oats. To create some curiosity, some desire to, to investigate more. And, and really, let's face it, it isn't you nor I who are doing any of that. We're walking in obedience. We're doing as the Lord has directed us. And the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that is convicting, that is, that is tearing down walls, that is changing lives. We get to be a small part of it. But let's be an effective part of it. Let's season things in such a way. Let's present it in such a way that it is desirable. And when it comes to believers within the body of Christ, as we approach one another, as we confront others about sin as we engage in each other's lives to encourage and provoke to love and good works. We do so in such a way that is direct and firm, just as Jesus did, but it's completely loving and tenderhearted. As we read about in Galatians, that we've considered ourselves first so that we don't fall into the same temptation. We don't fall. We've looked at, is there a beam in my own eyes? There's something that I have to deal with before I confront my brother about the speck in his eye. And we season our words with grace. We can have a very direct and fruitful conversation, yielding fruit in the hearts of both people as we do so in compassion and in love, as we do so directly, seasoned with grace. We all perceive that if we do that, we're going to cause offense. We're going to, there's going to be problems. You're just going to have to have the conversation. I'm just going to have to have, we all are just going to have to have the conversation. It is what it is. God's grace is more than sufficient for any of that. And we can safely trust that 
it is more than sufficient for any of that. So we're going to not cut each other down. We're going to engage in conversation with those outside and with those inside the church that would edify, that would build up, that would engage and equip and push on, provoke to love and good works. That's relationship. That's foundational, right? We do it with our children. We do it with our spouses. We should be doing it in the body of Christ. Now, I said that as we look at this chapter, the underlying and the overarching theme is that the sovereignty, the single sovereignty of God. And that's the same here because as we look at this and we engage, there's a heart behind everything that is going on. And we pick that up in verse 11, right? That he says, he that speaks evil of his brother judges his brother, or the word means condemns. That means that we've put ourselves in the place that we, of, con- of condemner or accuser, that's a better word, the accuser, what that means is that, well, let's read the rest. He said, and, the, and judges the law. He that judges the brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. So here's the thing, right? Here's what God has said. This is right. This is wrong. This is where God is. And I, and I get to say, nope, this is what we should be, be doing. I judge the law. I put myself in God's position. I get to determine what is right or wrong. I get to be the God after the own, my own image. And that's what's happening here. I get to make the determination. That's the heart behind cutting one another down. That I get to be the judge. I am the final go-to. I am the, uh, as Mark Zuckerberg would say, I am the purveyor of truth. Which is completely false. Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg, he's not the purveyor of truth. Nor are we in any way, shape, or form qualified to be those who judge the law. To get to say to God, you've made a mistake. I am right and you are wrong. This goes back to our fleshly influences. Those things that we talked about last week, uh, some of those things being very legitimate, right? That we have this, this war within our members, this lust and and all our sin nature fighting against our new spirit. And sometimes when we yield to that and we pursue that, there's strife and all those things are the fruit of that. And some of those things, some of those fleshly influences that we hold on to, that we have, they're, they're legitimate, right? We have a fear of being rejected. We have a fear of or desire to be acceptable before people. All of that is true and legitimate. We talked about that last week. If you missed it, you can go uh, look at, go listen to it online. But the idea here is that when we impute motives to others, without the benefit of omniscience, we establish ourselves as God's. We determine that somehow I know better than God and that I could have made a better, quote-unquote, system of law. 
I want you to turn with me first, and this is not in the notes, but you might write it down. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14 for just a moment. When we look at the enemy, when we look at Satan, and we look at why he was thrown out, why he was cast down, and we find in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, this declaration, this is what he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. I will be God. I will know better. I will. That was his declaration. And what difference is there between Satan saying, I will be like the most high and me saying, I know better than the omniscient, all powerful creator of the universe. In Jeremiah chapter 17, flip over there with me a few pages toward the back of your Bible, Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. And we usually apply this to ourselves, and I want to, and I want to do that again, but in a different way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's a rhetorical question. Who can know it? Because the answer is no one. And if you and I can't fully understand our own heart, the thoughts and the intents, if we can't bring that under control and the subjection uh, because it is corrupt, then how can I rightly judge and understand somebody else's heart and impute motive to them? Well, the short answer is we can't. But this is what's being addressed in James chapter 4. He goes on in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. When I say that I know better or that I can somehow judge my brother, I can condemn him because I understand that I judge the law, I condemn the law, I condemn the giver of the law. We've put ourselves in the seat that only God can occupy. We've said that I can search the heart. I can understand it. I can try the reins, the seat of the emotions, and understand. I can look into somebody's soul and determine what they were thinking, why they were doing what they were doing. We put ourselves in that place, and wrongfully so. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Let's look at verse 7 and a few other verses here. When it comes to the law, and it comes to us condemning the law, this is what it says in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And this is where Paul is here discussing this problem with his lust and, and being stuck or finding himself doing the things that he is not wanting to do. So it's a very similar context that we find in James chapter 4. Is the law sin? God forbid. He says, no, I had not known sin, but by the law. For if I had known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And he gives us an example. He, he makes the point here that for you and I, the law is good and it's inappropriate that it is God's instrument to instruct us about our sinfulness. And much more than that, because we are sinful, it instructs us of our need salvation. 
ultimately the law should point us to the cross. And if we stop short and we don't point people to the cross and we employ the law as a tool to share in the gospel, then we have missed the mark. We have stopped too short. Jump with me to verse 12. Wherefore, the law is holy. This declaration of God himself that the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. There's nothing wrong with it. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, the law clarifies sin. And for you and I to understand, for us as mankind to understand our need and our depravity before the Lord, should point us again to the cross. Don't stop short. That's the seasoning of grace that we're going to put upon the message of sinfulness. We don't get to declare that anything is wrong with the law because God himself, the creator of the universe, has established it. He has made it. And he declares it to be holy and good and useful for the purpose which he has created it. Jump over to Romans chapter 12, if you would. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as it lies in you, live peaceably with all men. So if we think about that in light of not cutting one another down, as much as it lies with me, I'm going to be the person who removes the fuel. I'm not going to be the tailbearer. I'm not going to continue the gossip. It's going to stop with me. It's going to stop with you. We're not going to be the person that cuts anyone down as much as it lies with us. We're not going to recompense evil for evil. That when we, are, when we have been maligned ourselves, our natural inclination is to retaliate. We are not going to return evil for evil. We're going to stop. It's going to end with me. He continues on. Verse 19, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Yet again, we try to put ourselves in a position that only God can hold. The heart behind cutting people down, the heart behind speaking evil of one another is a desire to be our own God, to have a God in our own image. Therefore, this is, a therefore, therefore, this is the takeaway. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? We're not going to stand in the place of, of the accuser. We're already accused.
It reveals a heart that desires to be in the position of God. It reveals for you and I as believers in the context of believers, because this is written to the brethren, it reveals a heart within the church at large and perhaps individually, to whatever degree, it reveals a heart within us to seek our own vengeance. Whether it's motivated by the desire to look better than that person, to be perceived as more spiritual than that person, whatever the, whatever the inappropriate desire, the lust that is warring within our flesh may be, it reveals a heart within us that is not submitted to God. It reveals a heart within us that wants to establish our own throne, our own stronghold of authority within our lives. It reveals a heart of God that, as we read in Romans chapter 12, would not lay down their life as a living sacrifice. But I'm going to hold on to that thing as tightly as possible. Now, he addresses that head on in the next verse. Let's read in James chapter 4, verse 12. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest, thy, judgest another? There's one lawgiver. And it isn't you. And it isn't me. The question that remains is, who are we? Turn with me to Romans chapter 9 for just a moment. Romans chapter 9. Let's look at verses 20 through 21. <clears throat> Nay, but O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Has not the power, the, has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? One utilitarian piece and one piece that goes on the shelf and you bring it out for special company. We are not the potter. We're not the lawgiver. We're not the executor of justice. We're not the one that brings judgment upon the world. That is Christ's responsibility and his alone. So who are we to say, I know better? Who are we to say it should be different? Who are we to say, that person over there, I can see into their heart. I can understand what they're doing, what they're thinking, and why, and condemn them. In Isaiah chapter 33 Verse 22, <clears throat> Isaiah 33, verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. Very clearly removes you and I from that position. But it goes on and it has one more phrase. He will save us. He will save us. For you and I to declare that we somehow know better than God, that we can somehow ha have derived a better system, is for us to say that we can save ourselves. 
that God is wrong in his condemnation of mankind, that I get to establish when I should be condemned and when I shouldn't be condemned. And you'll notice that what we find in James chapter 4, verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. He, the Lord, will save us. Not ourselves. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 26. Through 33. It says, fear, not them, fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what you hear in the ear, that preach you upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I want to just pause there for a moment. You and I, no matter where we may position ourselves, or those who are out there who may condemn you and, you and me, can't do anything beyond that. Even if they put us to death, even if we are somehow captured, persecuted to the degree that we give our lives as a result of proclaiming Christ, that's where it ends. That's the worst thing that could happen to you and I as a believer. It's the worst thing. And if we believe what Scripture says, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, then as Paul would say, I desire to be in God's presence. Nevertheless, Paul says, not my will, but thy will be done. But here I am. It's more needful that I would be here than I would be with the Lord. So here I am. Till such a time that God is done with me and all, and I've been of as much use to him as I can be. This is telling us, listen, we don't fear those who may be able to kill the body, but we do fear, we honor, we, we reverence, and there is a legitimate fear of him, God, the one lawgiver, who is able to kill not only our body physically, but the soul and the spirit, that which would continue on. Now, it isn't saying that you and I, uh, as believers, would lose our salvation. That's not what's being taught here. But what it is being, what is being clarified is who we should alone fear. Who alone sits on the throne of sovereignty, of judgment, of reproof, of correction. Who alone establishes what is right and what is wrong. And he tells you and I to take that which he has said, what he has whispered even in darkness, what he has given you and I plainly and clearly here in Scripture, and to proclaim it to the world around us. Now, he continues on. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? Right Here's two birds, two, two sparrows, two small birds, and they sold for a penny. They're worthless. There's no value in them. They're like the sparrows that keep getting into my chimney in my shop. And I just have to keep taking the thing apart and I'm just about ready to take it down because I'm tired of it. But had that little bird flown in there, and I'm sure I'm convinced it's the same one. And if I believed in evolution, which I do not, I'd be doing everybody a favor, right? Because we're going to survive with fittest. <laughs> That's terrible. Okay. But if that one starling goes in there, 
He's a fledgling. He's young and dumb. And he dies because I don't find him. I don't hear him. And before he kicks the bucket, God is aware of that. He knows about it. This word, this bird that is inconsequential to me, that is a pain in my neck, God is aware of it. And the, the thing that we just read in Scripture, that this valueless bird, if it dies and God knows about it, how much more you and I, who God and the world, our neighbor, our, our parents, our brothers and sisters, our cousins, our aunts and uncles, whatever, whoever we are near and dear with, who we would desire to see be saved, whoever that is, how much more value that God would send his own son while they were yet sinners, while they were yet opposed to him, while they were yet his enemy to die for them. It's incomparable by contrast. Right? We have this argument from lesser to the greater something valueless, but still God is concerned with it. How much more concerned would he be for you and for me? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows us so intimately that the hairs of our head are numbered. He knows us that well. He's that concerned with our well-being, with who we are, with what we're up to, what we're engaged in, where our heart is. Fear ye not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Not just two, many. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Right, this isn't a statement of losing salvation. That's not what's, what's being discussed here. We may yield to the lust of the flesh, to those fleshly desires, those influences. We may submit to that at some point. We may fall into sin, but that doesn't mean we've lost anything. And this is, would just be sin, right? But what he's saying is that we are boldly proclaiming who God is. And are we doing that consistently in life and in word? Or are we preaching two different messages? Are we putting ourselves on the throne, yet proclaiming that God himself is the throne? Are we those unstable people, those double-hearted people that we read about earlier in the book of James? There's one lawgiver. We're not it. One more reference here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. <clears throat> you and I as believers, fellow members of the body of Christ, as we look at that picture throughout Scripture, right, we find that there is no difference, that there is no, excuse me, no, there is difference, but there is no part of the body that is more important or less important than any other part of the body. That we, in God's eyes, are equally valued, and not only that, but it says the body is fitly joined together. In other words, it is put together by God specifically and directly so that it works where it's at. And for you and I, we would say, listen, I know better than God, 
perhaps, and, and I'm going to establish that that person there has got problems. I can see the thoughts and intents of their heart, right? We've put ourselves in God's position. Ultimately, what we're saying is that God has made a mistake in the body of Christ. That that portion of the body is less needful, that it's less necessary, that somehow it's causing problems. And I'm not talking about false teachers and those things that we should name. I'm talking about within the body. But this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And just pause there. You and I are not on that judgment seat. We're not in that position. We are not the magistrate who is executing judgment on the world around us. That is Jesus' position alone. We don't get to say to any part of the body of Christ that we are unnecessary or anything like that. We don't get to judge them and condemn them as a result of that. We, in fact, are in the same boat as they are standing before God in judgment. Now, thanks be to God who in Jesus Christ has saved us, so we are escaping the wrath. But Jesus tells us, listen, we're going to have to stand and give an account for every idle word even. He continues on. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. We read about it elsewhere, right? Here's the foundation we've built with enduring materials or we've built with perishable materials and they get tried. They're proven by that fire of judgment. That's the same thing being described here. We all stand before God. He is the one lawgiver. He is the one judge. We cannot dethrone him. Sola de Gloria, right? You have these solas, which are these statements of single, singleness. Sola means one. This means glory to God only. That's what it means. It's Latin. I'm not a Latin expert. That's what it means. Okay. God doesn't share his glory with you or with me. As badly as we may want it, as badly as we may desire it, just as Satan was cast down because of his desire to share in that glory, we may be corrected or rebuked for an inappropriate desire for the glory of God. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 42 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 42. Let's look at verse 3. Yeah, that's the wrong reference. Just just jump over to Isaiah 48. I hope it's the right reference. Isaiah 48, verse 11. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory 
unto another. You can look up through the Old Testament declaration after declaration by God himself who says, I will not share my glory with another. And while you and I, we teach our kids, you got to share, you got to, right? We, there's nothing wrong with sharing. But God doesn't share his glory because he's the only one that can bear his glory. We remember that when, uh, when Moses was up there on the mountain and he said, Lord, can you just show me your glory? And God said, listen, I can't show you my glory. If I show you my glory, you'll die. And so he says, but what I'll do is I'll hide you in the cleft of this rock. And as I walk by, I'll remove my hand. And he just sees the afterglow, as it were, of God's glory. Which, which to me gives some, if I can venture out just a little bit, gives some indication that the, the glory of God is something so palpable that it is part of his physical, quote unquote, physical existence. It is part of his character and his nature. It's inseparable from him. And if he shared it with someone, if he gave part of it up, he would be less than God. It was so much so that when Moses came down from the mountain, you remember that his face would shine. And then as that began to fade, when he'd go out in public, he'd cover his face so that they didn't see that that glory was fading. God wasn't sharing his glory, but it affected Moses to such a degree that his physical appearance was altered. His face glowed. But it's inseparable. God's glory is inseparable from who he is. Now, we do this and we may do this without even realizing it. And I almost did it earlier, right? Here we are talking about seasoning our words with grace and doing all of these things. And we have to be quick to acknowledge that, listen, even though we may be doing a good job in those things, it isn't you and I who is saving that person. It's the Holy Spirit. It is God, the Spirit, that is doing that work within them to draw them, to convict them, to bring them to salvation. In Acts chapter 12, turn there with me. In Acts chapter 12, I highlighted this just very briefly, mentioned it last week. Let's begin in verse 20 of Acts chapter 12. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain, their friend desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. Okay, so imagine this. We have these dignitaries from Tyre and Sidon. They're coming. They're seeking peace with King Herod. On a set day, here they are. He arrays himself in all of the kingly royal garb that he has, and he goes out and he gives this speech, this oration. That's what happens. 
And he continues on in verse 22. And the people gave a shout saying, it is the voice of God and not of man. And I don't know if his speech was such that it was, that it was full of wisdom. We don't know what he said. It doesn't tell us. But the people are moved to some degree by what he said. Either it's feigned. And these are all people, these are Herodians, those who would be loyal to King Herod. Or perhaps it really was that good. Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. And if you read the Gettysburg Address, it takes all of about two to three minutes. It's not a long speech. He was not the main speaker at Gettysburg when he was speaking. There was another man who was a professional orator, and I don't even remember his name. And he spoke for hours. Maybe it wasn't hours. That might be an exaggeration. But he spoke for a very long time. We have no idea what he said. I'm sure you could look it up. Google knows what he said. We don't remember that speech. We remember the simple, humble speech of Abraham Lincoln, who acknowledges God and his sovereignty, who acknowledges God and the rights that he imputes to, to mankind that only he can impute. And in that simple, small speech, he honors the Lord. Yet here's Herod, acknowledges God, and what does it say? And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. That's not going to share his glory with anyone. As he basks in this praise and this adoration that, oh, this is the voice of God. Look at him, how, how he speaks, how wise or how capable or how whatever it may be, fill in the blank. When he doesn't give that glory, he say, no, 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 no. I'm not out of God. You remember that Paul and, and Barnabas, right? That they uh, were misinterpreted more than once in the book of Acts as being gods. And they very quickly said, no, 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 we are not gods. We're, but let us tell you about the one and only God. And here Herod doesn't do that. And it says that the angel of the Lord smote him immediately and he was eaten of worms and he gave up the ghost. Because God won't share his glory with anyone. He doesn't share. It is who he is, and it is inseparable from him. Now, James chapter 4, let's continue on through verse, into verse 13 to 14. He says, Go to now, you that say today or tomorrow we will go into some city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain." Whereas you know not what shall be on the, on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. <laughs> he says, go to now, which means listen up, pay attention. But we've just established that there are those who are trying to establish themselves in the position of God in their own lives and in the lives of others. And he's very quickly saying, listen, there is one lawgiver, there is one God, and he won't share his glory. Who are you? You would say anything against the creator of the universe. You would say anything against God. Pay attention. Listen up. This is what you might say. We're going to go over here. We're going to spend some time. We're going to make some money. We're going to cut deals over in this town. He says, listen, you don't even know what tomorrow brings, let alone a year from now. Now, he's not saying 
don't make plans, don't be industrious. He's not, that's not what he's addressing. What he's addressing is the self-sovereignty that is cropped up in their hearts. That I get to be the sovereign in my own life and sit on the throne and remain there and say, well, listen, I, I just got my life all mapped out. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And that's, this is what's going to happen. And he says, you don't even know what tomorrow brings, let alone a year from now. Perhaps my will for you isn't to prosper you. Perhaps my will for you uh, out of necessity or out of love and concern is to bring you low, to humble you. We don't, you don't even know what tomorrow brings. He says, what is your life? It is a vapor. It's a mist. It's the fog, right? And there it is in the morning, and then later it's gone. It's burned off by the sun. It's blown away by the wind. It doesn't last. It doesn't, doesn't abide. Just a little time, and then it vanishes away. Proverbs 27, verse 1. Proverbs 27, verse 1, maybe. Here we go. He says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Boast not thyself of tomorrow. Jesus talked about walking in faith before the Lord. It turns me to Luke chapter 12. Why? Because we don't know what tomorrow brings. And he talked about walking in faith, but he did so in, in reference to worry and concern and anxiousness. I'm going to fret myself as if I could change this. In Luke chapter 12. Let's look at verse, uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, but let's start in verse 13. One of the company said unto him, Master, speaking to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he says, Jesus' response is, man, who made me a judge or a divider among you? I mean, there's already rules in place for all of that. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Okay, now this is, by way of application here, Jesus is addressing the same heart, this, this self-sovereignty. This, I know what tomorrow brings, and I'm going to lay plans in place, and I'm going to pursue that. And while there may be nothing wrong with pursuing and preparing for what God has called us to, this is a selfish pursuit, and we pick that up in this parable. And he spake in verse 16, a parable of them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Right? He's got an abundance. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. This is my barns aren't big enough. My grain bins are full. There's no room. Too much. And he said, this will I do. I'll pull down my barns and build bigger barns, build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and goods. Now, there may not be anything wrong with that. I mean, there was a need. There was something to be done there. There may be other options, things that he could have done instead of hoarding that. But I don't really think that it's necessarily inappropriate for him to have harvested what was in reason for him to harvest and to put it in a place where, I mean, the, the, that's not what... That's not the problem. The problem is this. He, he continues on. He says, I will say unto my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? You don't have to prepare for tomorrow. You don't, you don't know what famine may come. You don't know what may happen. 
right? Perhaps the Lord has provided abundantly so that in the, in the face of a famine, you can provide for yourself and for your neighbors, those who will be without, as we see happen in Egypt when, under Joseph. I mean, I, I'm just implying here that, that this guy says, listen, I am sovereign. I know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so therefore I will take my rest. I will take my ease. This isn't talking about a year of jubilee where we're going to let the ground rest. This is talking about, listen, I have arrived. Verse 20, God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Those, then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? all of this stuff that you've stored up, none of it means anything. It doesn't last. It doesn't abide. And he continues on. So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he goes and he explains this parable. He says, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for your body, what you should put on. The life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. And he goes and he talks about these different things and how they're illustrations of God's care and provision. In other words, just as we're reading here uh, in, in James chapter 4, listen, we're going to do this tomorrow. We're going we're to make these plans. We're going to execute them. We're going to take our ease after we've reaped all the benefit, right? But we don't know what tomorrow brings. We put, our place in, we put ourselves in a place of sovereignty in our life that is inappropriate for us as believers to have put us. We dethrone God and we say, listen, I'm going to pursue my own plans, purpose, and will. We're going to boast ourselves in those things. We're going to boast ourselves in the, this ability to see what tomorrow holds, though we really can't. And he leaves us with this. Verse 31 of Luke chapter 12. But rather... Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek ye these things. Seek first the kingdom of God, not what we may store for ourselves. The extension and the benefit of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, of the real sovereign of the universe. In James chapter 4, verse 2, he talks about why... <laughs> You lust and you have none. You kill and you desire have, and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war and you have not because you ask not. And you ask and you want to consume upon your lusts. This is the heart that's being addressed in Jesus' parable. In Job chapter 1, verse 21, I'll just let you write it down. Basically, Job says, listen, I came into this world naked and without anything, and I can't take anything with me when I leave. And Job was a wealthy man, and, not, and after he lost his family and everything that he had, it was restored to him above and beyond all that he had before. But none of that was going to last for eternity. He couldn't take it with him. So what Jesus is teaching you and I in that parable, what he's saying is that, listen, we pursue the things that are going to abide. We build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ with those things that do endure. We lay up our treasure in heaven where moth, nor rust, nor thieves can, can steal or corrupt. And we do so as a service to our sovereign, to the king of our lives.
Verse 15 of James chapter 4. For that what you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. This is what we should say. Now, this is not an excuse to inaction. If you ever talk to people who have been to the Middle East and they've spent a lot of time in Muslim cultures, they have this inshallah, which means if God wills. And what that means is that, you, you know, yeah, we're going to, you send these people over here to go get that, that, that truck so that we can do the work that's needed over here. And they'll say, yeah, inshallah. And then nothing ever happens because it's never God's will that anything gets done, apparently. It's not an excuse to inaction. It's not an excuse to inaction. We're walking in obedience. We are subject and submitted to the will and the plan and purpose of God. Rather, it's a purposeful, actionable, active submission, active faith to God. That's what's being discussed. That's what we're doing here. We ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and we shall do this or we shall do that. Two things. No, right, number one, this is God's will for us. Let's look at a couple of things here. Turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. It doesn't matter how strong, I mean, you look at Jericho, these massive walls, these thick walls, these unbreachable walls. And if God is against you, the walls are going to come down. And they're going to come down in miraculous fashion, march around it seven times, and then on the seventh day, seven times, and then blow your trumpets. And the wall falls down. We can watch, we can build the house, we can labor, but it's all in vain if it's not the Lord's will. If it's the selfish pursuit, if it's uh, the pursuit of our own sovereignty, the pursuit of our own plans, purpose, and will, it will come to nothing. Converse to that, though, on the other side of that same coin, if it is God's will, then it will stand. If it is God's will, then he will give us rest, right? It's vain for us to rise up early, to, right? We're putting in, we're burning the candle at both ends, so to speak. We're in pursuit of all of this stuff, things, glory, whatever it may be. But God gives us rest, it says. So for so he gives rest, gives his beloved sleep. We're not strife, we're not in strife or angst or worry about all of those things. Same thing. Spoken by Jesus in Luke chapter 12. He is sovereign. Now, Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through, uh, 6 through 10, and, and maybe a little more there, but in Acts chapter 16, here is Paul, and he's doing what God wants him to do. And I think this is probably just as maybe more applicable to you and I, because for the most part, we're not out there doing those things that, that are selfish pursuits. We may fall into that, but, we, but it's probably not the practice. It's not the habitual lifestyle that we're leading we're trying to serve the lord we're trying to do those things in obedience and in submission to who to him and his plans are purpose for you and me 
just like Paul was. Here he is, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so what is he doing? He's out sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. He's traveling around the known world, sharing with those that are Gentiles. And he has a plan and a purpose to go into a particular place. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Now, when we'd gone throughout uh, Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word of Asia, so just pause there for a moment. He's already been told, Paul, I don't want you to go over here. You don't get to go to Asia. Right? So he's already submitted to that. We're, we're not going there. That's outside of God's will right now, or maybe forever, but until it's revealed otherwise, we're not going to go there. So Paul's already submitted. He's already doing what God wants him to do. And he's got a plan in place to accomplish the task that God has called him to. After that, we came to uh, Messiah, and they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Right, so this is our plan. We're going to go here next. And the Spirit said, no, don't go there. And they passing by, the Messiah came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and I prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. God says, listen, I need you to go to Macedonia. I need you to go preach the gospel to these particular Gentiles. And he sends this vision. Paul sees this Macedonian man begging him to come and share with us the gospel. Verse 10, and after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. He was doing what God wanted him to do. He had a plan and a roadmap. These are the places we're going to go. We're going to travel these places. And he was submitted to the Spirit, to the leading of God to say, listen, I need you to not go there right now. I need you to come over here. I need you to share with these people. I'm going to send you this direction. We may encounter ourselves in the same way, serving God, doing what he wants us to do. But we have to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. We have to remove ourselves from the throne in our own lives and say, listen, Lord, this is what you have for me. This is what you want me to do. And if that changes from the plan that we've put in place to accomplish what God wants us to do, we're yielded and submitted to what God wants us to do. The new direction, the, the, the new head over here now. now. Whether that's changing of jobs, whether that's uh, different economic status, no matter what that may be. God says to you and I, listen, this is, this is it. And we're not going to live in such a way that we are the sovereign in our own lives. In Colossians 3.23, whatever we do, just as Paul, whatever we're doing, we do it heartily as unto the Lord. I'm pretty sure that's what that verse says. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. We're going to serve him. In Romans chapter 14, we're getting near the end. Okay, Romans 14, <clears throat> verses 8 through 10. But whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died 
and rose and revived that we might be the Lord, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us therefore judge one another, not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Here we are. We are the Lord's. Completely and holy. If you read in Romans chapter 6, you remember that we were freed from the bondage of sin and death, and we were brought into service of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what it's saying here. One more verse in James chapter 4. He says, therefore, verse 17, last verse, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, <clears throat> thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created you and i are not excluded from that statement that god created you and me for his pleasure for the execution of his purpose and his will in Romans chapter 1 and in Romans chapter 2, we find that there is this idea that mankind would be rejecting of the God who has created them, that they wouldn't want to acknowledge his existence. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, you and I, we, we typically, when we look at this, we apply it to unbelievers, which is true. But in the book of James, in chapter 4, and the things that we're looking at, this, in some respects, is applied to you and I. Because here is this discussion about when we knew God, we didn't glorify him as God. He is the Lord of every part of your life and of my life. But there are those things that we withhold, we hold back from him. And for you and I who know to do good, who have been created for his pleasure and to accomplish his purpose, that's sin. We need to be fully acknowledging of God, fully submitted to his plan and purpose for you and I. In Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 23, Behold, our cart, thou art called a Jew, and retest, restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, 
and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind and a light to them which are in darkness. You and I as believers, those statements should be true, that we are resting in the law of God, that we know it, that we are, should be instructing and proclaiming those things to the world around us, those who live in darkness, the truths of God. But this is what he says of them and potentially of us. He says, <clears throat> an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which thou hast a form of knowledge and the truth. Thou, therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. Verse 21, thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? That Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through the breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? In other words, you and I who know to do good and choose not to, whether it may be sharing the gospel with somebody, here is God specifically calling you and I to share the gospel with that person. Whether it's to honor him in, in our giving or honor him in uh, the stewardship of our time in in, in uh that word that starts with an H when you have people over. I was gonna, I kept thinking humility. It's hospitality. <laughs> Did not come to mind. Whatever it is, and there's lots of lots of things that we could put in this category. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight, nine, and ten. Right? We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, the same man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has before ordained that we should walk in them. The general and the specific will of God in your life, those things that we all as believers should be engaged in. And secondly, those things that we are specifically called to. His workmanship, those things that he has established for you and I. And I've shared this story once, well, probably many times before. But this is an illustration, right? There was a time driving home from work, and there's this kid wheeling his wheelchair through the snow. And I knew with an absolute certainty that God wanted me to stop, pick that kid up, share the gospel with him, and that if I didn't, there was an absolute certainty in my mind that that was going to end badly for me. And so I stopped, load the kid up, get his wheelchair in the back, give him a ride home. Get to know this guy. I mean, he starts coming to church, sharing the gospel with him. He gets saved, disciple him. He's moved on. Pretty much have lost touch with him. But the last I heard from this kid, he was doing well. He was engaged in a church. He was uh, serving on the worship team, I think. He was engaged in some ministry at the church. He, he was thriving in his faith. That was something that God called me to specifically. And I got to be this very small part of the greater plan for that kid. And I could have said, listen, it's cold outside. I don't want to do that. It's going to be embarrassing. I don't know this kid, whatever, whatever it may be. I knew when he called me to it, that that was an investment of my time. It wasn't a one-time, one-off. 
it was very clear what God was calling me to do. And that's just an example. That's one thing. You and I are called as parents to be parents. And I know that because we have children. If God has granted us kids, then we ought to be engaged in that pursuit to be parents who are raising children for the honor and the glory of the Lord. We're not responsible in many respects for how our children may respond to that, but we are responsible for what we do in that calling. For us who know to do good and we don't do it, that's sin. That applies whether at work, it applies within our families, it applies with those who outside of the body of Christ, those who are within the body of Christ. It covers the gamut of things. We are his workmanship. We are his instruments to be used wherever and however for his glory solely and completely. We need to realize the honor and the privilege that that is. I'll put this slide up here and you guys can write those down as, as I pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity before us to be engaged in your word, Lord, to take this book uh, James is extremely practical, this extremely hard-hitting, this extremely challenging book from you. And God, I pray that we would, by your grace, let it uh, affect every facet of our hearts, that we might engage in these things, not for selfish glory, not for any purpose above and beyond you being honored and made known. Help us, Lord, to be yielded to it. And that, God, if there's anything that I've misconstrued or, or misspoken, I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, correct and reprove, that you would give us insight into those errors. Lord, we want to take your word and we want to take it for what it says and not what I say it says. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your spirit, that he does lead and guide in truth. Lord, help us to have hearts that are submitted to the Spirit's leading. Help us, Lord, by your grace to be engaged in the purposes you have for each one of us. I thank you, Lord, for the, what I see in the lives of those here and the way that they are engaged in those things. Lord, help us to tear down every stronghold that we might be fully useful for you. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.